Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged wastrel playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. My name is HJ Doom and this episode we're taking a look at the 18th entry in the fighting fantasy series Rebel Planet. It's a science fiction book and as we've seen in previous episodes, that's not always an encouraging sign. But before we get into the meat and gristle of this thing, I'll give you a quick update on the gamebook I am writing to give away to my supporters on Patreon. I've finished the first half of the book, and I've begun work on the second part. It's shaping up to be compact, shall we say, compared to a fighting fantasy book, but that's partly because I've deliberately chosen a very cramped setting for the action. The working title is The Dark House of Dread, and you will be playing a professional spook hunter tackling a dilapidated townhouse said to be the most haunted house in England. If you'd like to get in on the action, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledging as little as a single English pound. Uh, You can also bask in the knowledge that your support helps make my regular bonus episodes possible. Now, in terms of today's book, I'm cautiously optimistic about Rebel Planet. It was written by Robin Waterfield, a classical scholar turned editor at Penguin Books, and is one of several he contributed to the series across a number of years. He's clearly a very smart cookie, and someone who, I hope at least, will be able to deliver a tight and compelling narrative. Rebel Planet was illustrated by Gary Mays, and the cover art for my edition is a rather nice picture by Alan Craddock of A Giant Lizard, and a person in a spacesuit squaring off on an alien planet that appears to be on fire quite a bit. It was published in 1985 by Puffin Books, and without any further ado, let's dive straight in to Rebel Planet. So, first up, uh, character creation is relatively straightforward. We've just got skill, stamina, and luck. Uh, I've got a skill of 10, a stamina of 21, and a luck of 11. And I've named the character the suitably heroic Truncheon Lobe Blather. Alongside that, we have 2,000 credits, which could be worth anything between 20,000 and 12 pounds. And we've got a laser sword. And I'm very pleased to see that the profusion of additional systems that often occurs with the science fiction novels has not been manifest here. The only slight change is that you can't run away from combat and if you're fighting hand-to-hand you have a one in six chance of just knocking your opponent out on any given successful attack. Now there is bags of background to this book uh, which I'm not going to read all of. Suffice to say that humans have been busy beginning to colonize the universe. They've landed on a few different planets. They've come across a mysterious planet that they've named Arcadion, and that planet turned out to be full of aliens. And the aliens have conquered the human embryonic empire, and humanity is being ground under the iron heel of a tyrannical alien regime. Crucially, the aliens have built a massive organic computer and there's a link to every single Arcadian brain. So if you can take out that computer, you can take out the entire corrupt Arcadian civilization. So that's going to be our mission. 
we're going to do a genocide. I will read the mission background in a minute, but there's also notes on the three different Arcadian species that you'll come across. They're all broadly space lizardy types, but you kind of got your classic Arcadian, your diet Arcadian, and your Arcadian Max. Uh, the northern Arcadians are huge. The southern Arcadians are a little on the heavy side, and the central Arcadians are the best at fighting. They're all quite arrogant. So, I will read the mission background, and then we will dive in. In times past, the planning and funding of human colonization of other planets was undertaken by SAROS, an international organization promoting search and research of space. Under the Arcadian Empire, SAROS has had to change. Although it seems to be just an astronomical institute, in fact, it has been doing all it can to overthrow the Empire. It quickly became clear that a full-scale military attack was out of the question, and that the only hope lay in a solo mission to destroy the central computer. Preparing for this mission has been a long and patient task, hindered by the fact that radio transmitters are still not allowed, and contact with the underground on other planets was difficult. But two factors make the time right now, or as right as it probably ever will be. Firstly, you are the perfect choice for the mission. You are resourceful, courageous, and dedicated to liberation. You have been trained for many months in martial arts, and you have acquired a knowledge of those branches of science that could be at all useful. Finally, your cover is excellent. You will travel as a merchant. I mean, that is absolutely classic spy cover. James Bond always used to use... Um, being an importer slash exporter as his cover when travelling abroad, so full marks for proper spycraft there. The second factor is that humans are now allowed to travel in space again, although only as merchants to serve the Arcadians. You will be taking wheat from Earth to Tropos, Zeridium from Tropos to the authorities on Radix, luxury goods from Radix to Halmuris, and you have been instructed to take an important Arcadian from Halmuris to Arcadion. So this suggests what the structure of the book might be, a jaunt from one planet to the next, without any space battles. It's very clear that we will not be engaging in any sort of tomfoolery in space. The other significant aspect of the lifting of the ban on space travel is that Saros has been able to send spies to gather the information you need for your mission. The picture that emerged is still incomplete because vital details were lost through traitors. Some humans trying to please their masters in the hope of some crumb of comfort, or of living for a few extra months. This treachery has its good and its bad side. The good side is that you now know you will not be able to trust every human you meet. Some may be helping the Arcadians. The bad side is that your mission must go ahead now, although the information is incomplete, before the Arcadians get wind of it. So that's nice, seeding a little bit of panic at this early stage. That's uh, impressive. We haven't even started, and I'm already feeling paranoid. Although that might just be my natural background level of paranoia. But the knowledge that did get through from the spies is crucial. The building that houses the Queen computer on Arcadion can be entered by using a numerical code of nine binary digits. And the underground leaders on each planet may know something to help you discover what the number is. The missing details are who the underground leaders are. You only know code names, at best, and of course, 
what the digits are. That is why your cover has been arranged to allow you to stop on each planet. You must locate the rebel leaders and learn the digits. Then you must destroy the computers. That's a pretty good mission background, I think. Tells us exactly what we're going to be doing and seeds a nice tension between we can't trust people, but we need to talk to people. So that's going to be really interesting. So on to the first page proper. And there's a nice little illustration of our spaceship blasting through the cosmos on its way to a planet. So that's rather nice. I'm sometimes a bit harsh on people deciding to draw interiors and or exteriors as a way of not having to draw anything too difficult, but the artist has done a really good job on this one. You settle comfortably into the padded pilot's seat of your spaceship, strap yourself in and examine the instrument panel. This is remarkably simple, consisting mainly of a computer terminal and several screens. The mechanisms of the Alpha Zeridium system are hidden deep within the bowels of the craft, and there is no need for you to have anything to do with them. Even if something did go wrong, your robot engineers would soon sort it out. The ship's computer has been pre-programmed to take you to Tropos and land there. And from this we learn that presumably the Arcadians could use robots to do everything that they need and are choosing to use the far less reliable humans, presumably out of cruelty and spite. So uh, this is making me feel better about the fact that what I'm trying to do is more or less genocide them. Now you ask the computer to check all life support systems through the ship. Within seconds, its tinny voice responds. Everything is functioning correctly. You contact base control to tell them you are ready. The ship's main support towers are towed away by massive robo-trucks. You flick the switch which activates the drive apparatus and you're off. Within minutes, the ill effects of the first thrust required for takeoff die down as you leave Earth's exosphere and enter the inky blackness of space. The gravidrags are automatically triggered so that the gravity within the ship is kept the same as on Earth, allowing you and your robots to move about freely. You switch on the rear-view screen to watch Earth getting smaller and smaller behind you. White cloud formations swirl. The sun glints off the northern ice cap. That's optimistic. Though you have often seen this sight before on trips to Mercury and Venus, it never fails to excite you. This time you feel homesick as well. Will you ever see Earth again? Your mission is so vital and so dangerous. Time passes. After a few hours, one of the screens flickers into life. The computer is alerting you to the presence of another spacecraft, which is keeping a constant distance away from you and seems to be shadowing you. Will you order the computer to take evasive action or continue on your way? That's a nice weighty choice to begin with. I mean, we've got cover as a merchant, so I'm going to work on the assumption that this isn't some suspicious person trying to keep tabs on me, but it's someone maybe from the underground trying to uh, unobtrusively make contact. So I think we will continue on our way. Aha! Validation. Not validation for being right, validation for being wrong, but coincidentally lucky. Quite right, your escort must be an Arcadian, and you do not want to draw attention to yourself. So I drew precisely the wrong conclusion, but it sort of worked out for the best. You pass the journey pleasantly enough in eating, sleeping, exercising, and playing chess with the computer. I hate chess. When you land on Tropos, you find that you are due to take off again tomorrow for Radix. 
The Arcadian guards at customs search your anti-grav pack, but find no more than your clothes, because they don't search your body, they rely on the metal detectors to do their job. But your laser sword has been treated with a chemical, which prevents it from activating the detectors, and your money belt contains no metal at all. Once you have registered, as all non-Tropian humans must on arrival, you leave the spaceport. So, already we've got a very short window of opportunity to try and find our first clue. Once you are out of the spaceport, you have no problems finding a hover taxi. This author really does believe in the uh, coining of new terms for things that would probably just be called a simple thing in the future. Probably the people of the future don't call hover taxis hover taxis. They probably just call them taxi, because for them, a hovering taxi is not a novelty. You climb in and instruct the microcomputer to take you south to town. You notice that a camera has been fixed in the taxi. There has been no effort to disguise it. Presumably it transmits everything it sees to the Arcadian police headquarters. Presumably there is a listening device as well. It is a good thing they cannot read minds because your thoughts are racing. You know three things about the underground leader on Tropos. The codename Bellatrix that he or she can be located through a club called the Fission Chips, so fission as in nuclear fission, which is in the city you are heading for, and that Bellatrix rules the rebels strictly with a code of honour that all must obey. Well, they sound nice. That's quite a lot to be going on. It's more than you know about the rebels on the other planets, and should make your task on Tropos relatively easy, if you act sensibly. Small likelihood of that, I fear. The other thing occupying your mind is that most of the Arcadians on Tropos seem to be members of the warlike northern species. They are the Bigans. The presence of so many of these natural fighters could make your mission on Tropos more hazardous. Why have so many of them been posted here? Are they closing in on the rebels? Do the Arcadians know that the fish and chips is more than it seems? There are many unanswered questions, but you turn your mind to the task at hand. There are still six hours to go before curfew. Will you instruct the taxi to take you straight to the fish and chips? Or to the hostel at which off-planet humans have to stay? I mean, no time like the present. Obviously, as a man over 40, I feel tired all the time. But the fictional person I am portraying probably has a lot more energy than me, so we'll go straight to the fish and chips. A smooth voice from the computer says, So sorry, taxis are not allowed in the city. Please keep Tropos free of pollution. As you are terrestrial, I will take you to the hostel. Subtract one luck point. So, that's good. Okay, that's a, a fine, fine start in the best traditions of fantastic fights. The hostel is a semi-derelict, flea-ridden building, and tropian fleas have got to be seen to be believed. Bet it's still nicer than a travel lodge. Two northern Arcadian guards stand by the door, and inside a scruffy southerner is sitting in a chair, leaning back against the wall, apparently asleep. What an odd setup. No robot receptionist or computerised check-in. And outside, everything is just as old-fashioned. There are no personal or public overhead monorail systems. Aha, what's more futuristic than a monorail? Got to build a monorail. The buildings are mostly late 21st century and low-lying. And the pollution. Oh, to think they haven't yet got around to dealing with it. A sign on the wall says, 
Remember, no vehicles in town. Offenders will be prosecuted. A typically primitive solution to a primitive problem. Will you wait for the receptionist to notice you or draw his attention to your presence? This is doing a surprisingly good job of making me feel unsafe in a very particular way that I associate with totalitarian regimes and racist regimes. The sense that I am a interloper in a world whose rules I don't yet understand and which I am very much a second-class citizen in. So my instinct is that waiting for the receptionist to notice me is the better bet because drawing attention from a more powerful species might be seen as uppity in some way. So we will just politely wait. After waiting for a while, you decide this is a waste of time. You can always check in later. You go upstairs. The whole of the first floor is a long dormitory, which is remarkable for its filth, gloom and lack of company. Several beds are made up, but their occupants are out at this time of day. There is one other human, however, who is sitting sadly on a truckle bed, his body heaving with sobs. Will you go and grab a bed near him and strike up a conversation, or will you settle far away? Well, I hate seeing people upset who aren't Tory MPs or policemen, so I will go and grab a bed near him and strike up a conversation in the worst way possible, it turns out. Cheer up! You say heartily as you dump yourself on the bed, whose springs respond with an alarming bong. It may never happen. He already has, moans the man. What do you mean? Where are you from? You ask. Oh, I'm from Tropos. I'm only staying here because those murdering swine have made me homeless. They suspect me of being a rebel, you see. My wife, my children. He breaks down again and sobs with his face buried in his hands. We have to decide whether to trust him or not, I think. Do we want to try and calm him down or leave him quietly to his grief? I mean, given my stellar abilities to cheer the man up so far, it might be better to leave him be, but I will stay with him to try and calm him down. Maybe I'll pull some kind of humorous faces or something, let's see. After a while, the man's sobs die down. He lies back on his bed, staring vacantly the mouldy ceiling. Suddenly, there is a commotion downstairs. You jump up, just as one of the guards from outside the hostel runs into the room, brandishing a whippy, which is, at least according to the picture, a whip. But a space whip. The receptionist has been murdered, he shouts. Which one of you dogs did it? Not that it matters. Ten human lives for every Arcadian, and you two will be the first. In my head, all of the Arcadians sound a bit like Richard Nixon. I feel the necessity to state that as my Richard Nixon impersonation is fundamentally unrecognisable as Richard Nixon. But just keep Richard Nixon in mind. He approaches your companion who has remained lying on the bed as if he didn't care about death or didn't believe he would die. You cannot stand still and let a fellow human die. You pull out your sword and leap to the attack. So we must fight the guard who has a skill of six and a stamina of eight. And every other attack round, we roll one die, and on a five or a six, the guard has managed to get a hit on you with his tail. Whatever the result of that attack round, you must deduct two stamina points on top. So, there is a picture of the guard. He looks like a fascistic bully boy, I have to say. 
Yeah, it's a nice picture. But for the first time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the guard. He managed to hit me twice. So my stamina is now reduced to 17. Bravo, cries the man as you switch off your sword. But now we'd better be getting out of here. Come with me. Will you tell him you'd rather be left alone or will you go with him? I think he knows the lay of the land better than I do, so I will go with him. You turn south out of the hostel. As you are walking along, you realise that you will have to ask someone the way to the fish and chips, and it might as well be this man, who has introduced himself as Gruss. I'm hungry, you say. And a friend back on Earth said that a club called the Fish and Chips was worth visiting. Can you tell me where it is by any chance? Gruss looks at you curiously. Yes, I can get you there, he replies. It's in the basement of the old Adolfo Videorama. But your friend must have had strange tastes if he recommended the food there. Or the company. Never mind, I'll take you there. You notice that the city is laid out very regularly on a square grid pattern. The hostel is at the north end of North 23 East 5 Street. And the next block south starts at the top of North 22 East 5 Street. The buildings are all very alike except for the Temple of the Five Suns, which towers above the rest of the city and is a famous landmark. It is the centre of the imperial religion on Tropos, the Five Suns being the suns of the planets in the Empire. You are led five blocks south and four east. Eventually, Gross takes you down a side street. Wait here, he says. I have to see someone, someone who can get us into the fish and chips. Not long now. He knocks on a door. Will you insist on entering the house with him, or will you stay out in the side street? Oh, is he a collaborator? I'm going to insist on entering the house with him. Suspicious, aren't you? says Gross. Is that the thanks I get? All right, you can come in. The door is opened by another man who looks furtively both ways down the side street before ushering you in and locking the door behind you. You are shown into a sparsely furnished room. Everything looks harmless enough, but your trained suspicions are suddenly aroused. Just then, Gruss shouts, Grab him! But watch out! He's armed! Before you can react, Gruss and the other man pin you to the wall and take away your sword which they throw across the room, so that their hands are free to keep you where you are. Set you up nicely, didn't I? Snarls Gross. <laughs> Though, in a way, I'm sorry. Me and my buddy Indus here, we're thieves. Got caught by the alien scum, he spits the word out. So now, they use us as spies. It's either that or they kill us. Now I reckon we'll have repaid our debt with this one, Indus. You struggle to get free. Roll a die. And it's a straight one to three, four to six. Binary choice. So let's roll a dice. Six. You succeed in getting an arm free while at the same time landing a kick on Indus's instep. Oh, that's smart. The fight is on. This is an armed combat, so follow those rules. And you must fight them both at the same time. The unarmed combat rules mean I have a one in six chance of uh, battering someone unconscious on a successful hit. Gruss has a skill of 5 and a stamina of 8. Indus has a skill of 6 and a stamina of 8. I am going to roll some dice. 
I have succeeded in pummeling both of the near-do-wells unconscious, and uh, to my immense satisfaction, I was able to land a knockout blow on Gruss, and uh, rather more slowly and methodically beat Indus unconscious. So that was nice. Uh, quite a lot to keep track of in that combat, I have to say, with three different participants plus an additional die roll on every successful attack. Probably about as complicated as you ever want a combat in fighting fantasy to get, I think. No, no, I didn't knock them unconscious. I killed them. You feel wretched having killed two fellow human beings, but what else could you do? You pick up your sword. Do you want to search the house or leave and try and find the fish and chips? Well, there's one thing that's always true. Once you've done a murder, you've got to go through their stuff. So that's what we will do. They obviously use the house as a place to stash their stolen goods. You decide not to stay long, but you soon uncover 500 credits, a Zeridium-plated bracelet, and an infrared scanner. You may take any of these items and then leave. Well, I'm going to take all of those items and then leave. So, um, yes, 2,500 credits we've now got. So uh, even if we don't end up doing Space Lizard Genocide, you know, we've still made out okay on the jaunt. An infrared scanner sounds like it'd be dead useful. And a Zeridium-plated bracelet is exactly the sort of thing that doesn't sound useful, but then could turn out to be useful. On we go. Let's try and find this club. You lose yourself in the crowds on the main street. You really must find your way to the fish and chips soon, or it will be curfew. Also, you're getting very hungry. Deduct two stamina points. Oh, hunger mechanic, is it? You decide to go into a grocer's shop to buy some food and perhaps ask the way as well. It is one of the few small shops around, the rest are vast automated hypermarkets. As you enter the shop, your hunger really gets the better of you, and to the astonishment of the human grocer, you purchase 20 credits worth of fruit and nuts and gobble them all down on the spot. Okay, so we reduce our credits to 2,480. Made it sound like a dance score. Must be some new terrestrial fad, you hear the grocer mutter to himself, but he is pleased to see a human spending money on such luxuries. Bread and oom, a porridge made from tropian beans, is a staple diet for humans. Oh, that's better, you declare. You may restore four stamina points. Taking us back up to 17. Do you want to ask him the way to the fish and chips or the Adolfo Videorama? Well, the Vision Chips is in the basement of the Adolfo Videorama, but I guess the Videorama has a less unsavoury reputation, so I will I'll ask the way to the Videorama. Why on Tropos do you want to go to that old place? asks the man suspiciously. Been derelict for years. If you want a good time, some entertainment, I can tell you where to go. You thank him, but tell him that you've arranged to meet a friend outside the Adolfo. He tells you that the Adolfo is not far away on North 20 East 7 Street. And where are we now? you ask. Halfway up North 18 East 19 Street, comes the reply. There is no time to lose. You must get on with your mission. Will you go north for one and a half blocks, then west for two blocks, or north for two and a half blocks, then west for two blocks? Oh, I can't do compass directions. I can't tell the difference between east and west. Ah, oh, so north... 20 East 7 is where we're going, and we're halfway up North 18 East 9. So one and a half blocks north will get us to North 20, and then we need to go west for two blocks. Surely we want to go east, if it's on east. Oh no, we're now on East 9, so we want to go backwards, which is west. Okay, north for one and a half blocks, then west for two blocks. 
Made that sound like hard work, didn't I? The Fish and Chips is the basement of the former Adolfo Videorama. A neon sign with many bulbs missing still advertises the latest feature. A classic science fiction comedy from the 20th century called Star Trek. Yup, not even going to comment on that. You go down the steps which lead to the entrance to the club and knock on the door. A human face appears at a peephole. What do you want? It says aggressively. To get into the club, of course, you reply. Who recommended you to us, stranger? Asks the doorman, emphasising the last word. Will you reply Saros, Bellatrix, the Grand Vizier of Troops, or no one, I'm from Earth? Ah, I can dimly hear the sound of my occasional co-host, Nelson the Cat. So, I do apologise if you also hear the sound of him too. He's concerned because it is a mere hour and twenty minutes until he is next fed. Uh, So I'm going to say Bellatrix, because that's the uh, name of the underground person. (laughs) <laughs> Should have said Saros. Should have said Saros. I was thinking about saying Saros. Didn't. Now I have regret. Ooh, get lost, says the doorman. You do as he says, or attempt to smash the lock with your sword. You can smash the lock only if you still have your sword, of course. Indicating that there is a version of this adventure where the protagonist is having an even worse time than truncheon lobe blather. I mean, I do need to get in. So I guess I'm going to smash the locks with my sword. A few swift strokes gains you entry into the club. Saros is saying you shouldn't have done that, whispers the doorman. We cannot put our operation at risk by openly defending such foolish action. He scarpers to make way for the onrush of several Arcadians who had been sitting quietly in the club until you so rashly drew attention to yourself. You will have to fight them all, but because you are backed against a wall at the top of the short flight of stairs inside the club, you can fight them one at a time in this order. So we have four Arcadians to fight. A Northern Arcadian with a skill of 8, a stamina of 12. A Southern Arcadian with a skill of 6, a stamina of 10. A second Southern Arcadian with a skill of 7, stamina of 8, and a drunk Southern Arcadian. That's a lovely touch with a skill of 4 and a stamina of 8. So realistically, there's only 3 of them because the last one is going to have to get obscenely lucky to even land a blow. But that is still 38 points of stamina I've got to take off them. So I guess I'd best get on with that by going and rolling some dice. After approximately three weeks of rolling dice, I have defeated all four Arcadians. They have reduced me to four stamina points, with the bulk of the damage being inevitably done by the large northern Arcadian at the start, who absolutely battered me. And, of course, at least a bit of the damage inevitably being done by the four-skilled drunk southern Arcadian, who I had so uh, comprehensively written off as a threat earlier. So, uh, yes, that's that's nice. Uh, planet one of five, and yeah, we are already almost dead. So, I have at least one. That's something. The doorman reappears by your side. Now will you do as you're told and beat it? He hisses. You've shown how good you are with a sword and all that, but the club will be closed down now thanks to you. The sound of a patrol approaching at the double can already be heard. Will you insist on staying, perhaps to pretend you were an innocent bystander, or leave? I guess I'll leave. With every Arcadian death being punished by 
10 human executions. I have just indirectly led to the murder of 40 people. Obviously, the vast weight of moral responsibility rests with the Arcadians who will choose to murder 40 people, but I've still been involved in that process, which is a shame, really. You leap up the steps and are immediately spotted by an Arcadian patrol who give chase. Test your luck. A one and a four. Yes, I am lucky. Luck now reduced to nine. You dodge and weave through the pedestrians and up and down alleyways. You manage to escape. You manage to escape the patrol, but at a cost of one stamina point. So, stamina now down to three. If I had died from running too hard, that would have been the most ignominious death so far. In a pretty packed top ten of ignominious deaths, I think running too fast and just dying would have been the absolute worst. After a while, eventually, when all seems safe, you slump down in a doorway. After a while, you realise that you can only go back to the hostel and try again tomorrow. So you start to get up. But at that moment, the door behind you opens and rough hands grab hold of you. Do you want to attempt to put up a fight or are you too weak and depressed to bother? Oh, it's like the author's met me. I am too weak and depressed to bother. Your captors are human. They blindfold you and lead you down into the cellar, where, to your surprise, a draft indicates the presence of a corridor. But that is your last impression for a while. A heavy blow to your head knocks you unconscious. You slowly climb back to consciousness. The first thing you are aware of is a splitting headache. Deduct two stamina points, taking us down to one. I very nearly died of a headache. And I would have died if I hadn't eaten yet today because it would have been three stamina points, which is really clever. The second thing you notice is that even when you open your eyes, it's still pitch black. Once you have realised that you are not blind, but that wherever you are is in darkness, you clamber to your feet. Immediately, a bright light stabs your eyeballs. You instinctively cover your face with your arm. Behind the light, you can just make out three human shapes two standing on either side of the third who is seated at a table. A woman, who is apparently the one seated, addresses you. You seem to know something of our business. That could mean one of two things. Either you are an Arcadian spy, or you are one of us from Earth. If the latter is the case, I apologise for the rough treatment you have received from us, but you will understand why this was necessary. Now... Explain yourself. I'm looking for Bellatrix, you begin. So, you know my code name, she says. That in itself doesn't prove a thing. We may have been infiltrated. This is a tricky situation. They are not convinced that you are from Saros. Are you entirely sure they are rebels? Will you try and convince them that you are who you say you are, or ask for proof of their identity? I've got one stamina point. If I demand proof of their identity and someone shouts, it could easily prove fatal. I'm also in no position to be making demands, and every single decision I've made has been the wrong decision. So I guess I'm just going to have to go along and try and convince them that I am who I say I am. I mean, given my level of competence, they'd be forgiven for thinking that I'm just some poor lunatic. You take the plunge. Surely they, they must be the underground. 
You tell them everything about your mission and even drop the names of one or two people back on Earth who they might know of to make your story more plausible. Once you have finished, the three humans huddle together. This is a good sign. If they were traitors, they would have finished with you by now. At last they separate. Bellatrix speaks again. Very good. You seem to know more about this mission than any Arcadian spy could know. There is just one last thing we want you to do. The barman at the fish and chips is a double agent. Return there and kill him. Do you agree or not? So she's got a kind of code of honour, doesn't she? That's one of the things we were told. Would she not just kill the barman herself? I'm going to say no. Why are you hesitating? Asks Bellatrix. Will you say that you know he's not a double agent? Which I don't know. Or that you need more proof? I will say I need more proof. Ah, a sense of justice. That tips the balance in his favour, don't you think? Bellatrix asks the other two. They agree. Besides, as one of the men points out, you know so little about your inquisitors that even if you were a spy, the only information you could pass on would cause merely a temporary halt to the rebel operation. All right, says Bellatrix. I'll tell you what I know. It's not much after all your efforts, I'm afraid. Rumour has it that the Northern Arcadians made up a marching song to help them remember a sequence of three of the digits. I don't know what they are, however, or where this sequence comes from in the whole series of digits, but here's the song for what it's worth. So, uh, they've very thoughtfully written the song in English, which uh, is really good-spirited of them. Um, I'm not going to try and sing it, I'll just sort of gently chant it. No one needs to hear me try and sing. So it goes, Oh, mortal combat is such joy, no messing about, no subtle ploy. Empire of Arcadion, Empire of Arcadion. Onward, ever onward, open pitched battles make me high. Never mind the odds, let's do or die. Evermore Arcadion, evermore Arcadion. It's one of the digits zero for O. So anyway, we've got the, the Arcadian song. It says, never mind the odds. So even numbers only, perhaps. Let's do or die. Maybe something to do with a D6. So if one of them was zero, so it could be 246. Yeah, could be 246. As people who listened to the last bonus episode will know that much as I enjoy a good riddle, I don't really have any talent for solving them. So, uh, yeah, we'll just have to, to, to go on. I'm going to make a note of this paragraph in case I need to refer back to it later. That's all you can get from Bellatrix, so the information from the other two planets is absolutely crucial. All of your equipment is returned to you. You are pleased by their generosity and trust in replacing your sword if you had lost it. Still got the sword. I get two luck points, much needed for the information and equipment, returning me to a maximum of 11 luck. They also have a vial of Quandar Root Lotion, which will heal four stamina points of wounds, but you have to buy the vial from them for 50 credits and use it immediately. Do so if you want. Well, I do want, because I only have one stamina point left. So that takes me down to 2,430 credits and back up to five stamina. You are escorted through a maze of underground tunnels back to the hostel, where the guard has been trebled since you were last there. You sleep deeply. Restore two stamina points. The next morning, you return to the spaceport. 
So, back up to a whopping 7 stamina. When you arrive at the spaceport, you find that there are a great many Arcadian guards mingling with the crowds. Did you let an Arcadian escape in Gross's street? I did not. So, that's some good news. Oh, that's interesting. The patrolling Arcadians scarcely give you a second glance. Before you reach customs, the next checkpoint, do you want to get rid of any of your equipment? If so, you find a safe spot in the human's washroom to do it. That's very clever. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this Zeridium plated bracelet might be something that could be used to identify Gruss. So I'm going to dump that. I'm going to hang on to the infrared scanner, however. It just seems so useful. At customs, you tell the Southern Arcadian duty officer that you are a merchant bound for Radix, and she crosses your name off the register of off-planet humans on Tropos. Then she orders you to hand over your pack. It's a picture of Tropos customs and a pair of Arcadians who look, yeah, you know, Jobsworths, basically. Yeah, nice illustration. They've been good, actually. All the illustrations I've seen so far have been good. She orders you to hand over your pack. You do so and are dismayed to find that the pack will be looked through, not by this southern Arcadian, who is likely to be more easygoing, but by a hatchet-faced central Arcadian, whose multicoloured crest shows that he belongs to a high military rank. Although he has presumably annoyed entirely the wrong people because he's stuck doing customs duty. I've never flown, but I'm not aware of any of the people I know who have ever flown making their way to the States only to find that a four-star general is going to go through their baggage. Most of your equipment is harmless enough to pass the inspection, but do you still have either both of a coil of rope and an infrared scanner? I have one of those items, so should have binned the scanner, it turns out. You manage to persuade him that the item is harmless. Yes! Without further ado, you board your spaceship, which is loaded up and ready to go. You instruct the computer to switch to its pre-programmed route from Tropos to Radix. There are no problems on blastoff, and you relax for the first time for many hours, as Tropos dwindles on your rearview screen. But what lies ahead of you on Radix? Both advantages and disadvantages, as far as you can see. On the one hand, Tropos is such a backward planet, both culturally and technologically, that you are likely to feel more at home on Radix. On the other hand, you don't even know the code name of the underground leader on Radix, and it is now more crucial than ever that you learn what he or she has to tell you. Moreover, you know that the Southerners are the most dominant Arcadian species on Radix, attracted there by the corruption and freedom. This too has its good and bad points. Southern Arcadians can be more tolerant than the others, but they are more difficult to communicate with. I know it's a trope of science fiction, but I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the biological essentialism being depicted here. No, I get it. It is a useful technique in a science fiction story to reduce individual difference within an already strange and unusual group in order to give the audience some kind of traits to latch onto as being representative of this alien species. But that's a sort of thinking that can be easily transferred across to the real world where it creates all sorts of problems. During your journey to Radix, you may restore half as many stamina points as your current stamina score rounding odd numbers down and remembering that you cannot exceed your initial score. So I can restore three. So back to a comparatively hale and hearty 10 stamina. Customs is no problem on Radix. 
They are so delighted to have the Zeridium that you are welcomed by the resident Arcadians, as much as any Arcadian is capable of welcoming a human. Seems your load of Zeridium was needed to complete a parascientific project of theirs. Could have just said scientific. You find that you have two full days. It is now early morning until you must leave for Halmuris. Once you have registered, you make your way out of the spaceport, which is so highly mechanised that even a terrestrial like yourself it feels strange. The inhabitants do not believe in doing any work unless they really have to. Hmm, I should emigrate. There are robots everywhere, some of them sophisticated state-of-the-art models that can almost think for themselves. Moving pavements crisscross the spaceport, which actually makes you impatient because they move slowly enough to allow stepping from one to another. Yet, you feel decidedly springy on this planet as the gravity is slightly less than that of Earth. Always a nice touch, a bit of gravity. You soon discover, however, that this does not in fact help you to move any more quickly, since you need some practice to achieve the correct coordination. The personal monorail system, hooray for monorails, is all you could have hoped for, and you are soon gliding smoothly, but at speed, towards the only major town on the planet where the underground must be located. On the way, you call up to the screen a list of hotels where humans can stay. Only two names sound attractive, one which has gained three stars from the Radician quality assessors, and one which they haven't bothered to comment on at all. Will you stay at the Zodiac for 375 credits a night, or at Porky's Palace? <laughs> For 50 credits a night. I am so tempted to go and stay at Porky's Palace because whenever I travel, that's where I have to stay. I can only dream in the real world of, of staying in a three-star hotel, so I will I will indulge a possible taste for luxury by going to stay at the Zodiac for 375 credits a night in the hope that it might lead to some stamina recovery, because while 10 is better than 1, it's still not as good as 21. So yeah, onwards to the Zodiac. Having a lovely time with this one. On the way to the hotel, you notice something odd about the city. In some streets, whole houses have been demolished, even though the surrounding buildings are still standing. It is as if a localised earthquake had struck. You soon arrive at the hotel, which is extremely posh and luxurious. You check in for one night, deduct 375 credits. While you are enjoying a private sauna, the expense begins to seem worth it. Restore one stamina point. Eventually, feeling refreshed, you wander downstairs to see what edible delights might be on offer, and to give yourself time to think about how to contact the underground. You can either eat in the bar where the cost is covered by the cost of your room, or, for an extra 40 credits, you can dine in the restaurant. Well, we are living the high life on the basis that I am pretty certain I will soon be dead. So we will splurge the 40 credits on eating in the restaurant, so taking us down to 2,015 credits. You have a fantastic meal. The Rhodesians, who enjoy the good things in life, have perfected the art of cooking food, which is both pleasing to the eye and the taste buds, and also highly nutritious. You may restore three stamina points. So, we're up to 14. Ah, oh, how the wheel has turned! The waiters in the restaurant are all human, apart from the imperious head waiter, who watches everything with an eagle eye. 
One of the waiters comes over to inquire whether he would like anything else. He talks most peculiarly. Another meat course, sir, or some parking? Hmm. Uh, you tell him you've had plenty and get up to leave. He's obviously trying to talk to us in code that I don't understand. Will you go to the bar or do you have an appointment to keep? Ah, I see. Meat. He says meat distinctly and he says parking distinctly. Um, parking for my international listeners and indeed my listeners from the south of England is a ginger flavour northern uh, cake. Uh, very, very stodgy, very sweet, pretty nice, I have to say. So by emphasising the words meat and the word parking, uh, he's telling me that he would like to meet me in the parking lot. So that's nice. Either he's part of the underground or we're about to make a new friend. <laughs> Once again, I've I've got the right choice by the wrong reasoning. You take the monorail to the public park and find the waiter at the main entrance. We've been expecting you, he says. Earth sent another merchant to warn us of your arrival. I don't know all the details of your mission, except that you have to meet our leader. I don't know who that is. We work on the basis that each person has contact with only his immediate superior. But I think you could start at the university. You thank him and may add one luck. I'm at maximum luck. You head for the university. There is a monorail drop station just outside. Will you plunge straight in or wait around outside for a while? I mean, I'm going to plunge straight in. What am I going to wait for? Someone to look like a secret agent? Yeah, straight in, straight in. The university, which is only for humans, is a small affair these days, occupying a single large building on the outskirts of the city. Arcadian guards are everywhere since they have to make their presence felt in this hotbed of possible rebellion. When you go to the science floor or to the arts floor? Uh, my experience is that scientists are more likely to be collaborators provided that the funding for their latest particle accelerator comes through okay. Whereas no one ever wants to fund the arts, so they're always a hotbed of possible rebellion. So I will go to the arts floor and try and find someone in a roll neck who's an obvious malcontent. Do you have an introduction to anyone here? I do not. So uh, we go on to the next bit. There is really not a lot you can achieve here. Will you wait for a bit anyway or go down to the science floor? Or leave the university. I will wait for a bit anyway. Still hoping that someone in a black roll neck who rolls their own cigarettes will come and uh, just look like an obvious revolutionary at me. After a while, the corridors quieten down as most of the students go off to lectures. Then, one student approaches the notice board and rather furtively pins up a poster. You just have time to see that it announces some kind of demonstration when the young man is thrown to the floor by two others and his poster is ripped from the wall. The two louts then proceed to beat him up. You will fight both the louts simultaneously in unarmed combat. Okay, so it gives us the stats for the louts, who have a skill of six and a stamina of eight, and a skill of five and a stamina of six. There's a slight wrinkle to the usual multiple combat rules rather than me rolling once and then rolling twice i'm rolling once for each of them but i can only choose one of them to actually hurt which seems like a bit of a unnecessarily complicated way of iterating on the combat system but hey here we are uh, it also says it's not a fight to the death if my stamina is reduced to four my opponents will run away 
Because what's more scary than beating the snot out of someone? I mean, maybe they just feel a sense of disdain that turns into absolute revulsion. Who knows? Anyway, I'm only going to knock them out, not kill them. So zero stamina means I've knocked them out, which is reassuring because, you know, I've got enough bodies on my conscience as it is at this point. So I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated both of the louts. The young man you rescue takes you to the student's bar and buys you some drink and food, uh, which restores three stamina points. So actually, we're doing pretty well now. Back up to 17. Uh, maybe things are looking up. You join some friends of his at a table. Hey, you lot, exclaims the young man. This earthling here just gave a couple of black eyes, black eyes. When you, When the inevitable questions have died down, you ask who the black eyes are and learn that they are a pro-Arcadian political group. The students are planning a demonstration against the personal files that the university secretary keeps about every member of the university. But the Black Eyes agree with the system. Eventually, you take your leave. Do you want to go to the science floor, university secretary's office, or will you leave the university? I will go to the university secretary's office where I plan to break in and steal files. You had imagined a human secretary, but find a burly South Arcadian. Of course, the Arcadians would want to keep an eye on the files. He looks at you in surprise. You do not exactly look like an ordinary student. Can I help you? He asks, but his antennae are waving alarmingly. Will you fight him so that you can investigate the files, or consider that they are probably not worth the bother? I think they're definitely worth the bother. I am going to beat him to death. The Arcadian is unprepared for such an assault. On this planet, they are not used to coping with violent rebels, so he is unarmed. Being armed, you may add one skill point for this fight only. You can use the rules for unarmed combat if you prefer. No, I think I'll take the one skill point and use my laser sword to just stab him up. So, uh, the Arcadian Secretary has a skill of 7 and a stamina of 8. I'm going to roll some dice. Well, I beat the Arcadian Secretary in straight sets, you might say. Uh, strangely enough, as I'd brought a laser sword to a fist fight, he didn't do any damage to me whatsoever. I now, however, need to test my luck. So with a luck of 11, this should be fine. A 1, it's fine. Total of 5. Luck now down to 10. I've a feeling I might have rolled a 5 the last time I tested my luck. Fortunately, the corridor outside is deserted. The students are at their lectures and no guard passes by to hear the noise. Excellent. You soon find a rack of computer disks marked University Records. You are only interested in the two current ones and discard the rest. Will you look through them now or take them away with you? I will look through them now, I think. There's a uh, picture of the... Uh, the records office, which is exactly what you would imagine someone from 1985 would think a futuristic records office would look like, in the sense that it looks kind of like a library, and there's big boxy screens all over it as well. After a while, you hit the jackpot. A section of the file is devoted to activists, potential and actual. You are so engrossed in the details that you do not hear the approaching guards until... It is too late. So the adventure is over. Yeah, I've been recording for a good hour and a half now, so I won't invoke the sausage-fingered bookmark. Um, so um, 
that's a really interesting little adventure game book. I will be back with some closing thoughts in just a couple of seconds. But until then, tatty bye. So that was Rebel Planet. I thoroughly enjoyed the playthrough and I've since taken the time to play it through to completion. I'd formed some tentative conclusions about how the book worked from my playthrough and it was really interesting to see which of the assumptions were confirmed when I really started delving into the structure of it. My first thought, way back at the introduction when I saw the itinerary of planets I was going to be visiting, was that the structure was likely going to be very linear. I think I was broadly correct in that. The nature of the mission meant that in order to progress to the next planet, you'd have to successfully obtain the relevant digits of the security code. This means you've got to succeed in each bit of your mission, and that strongly limits the design space in terms of narrative. The alternative approach, one much beloved of Ian Livingstone, is to have a single gate at the end of the adventure with a list of necessary items which you need to progress. Now, the latter approach gives you more freedom to design an open setting where the player can choose how they interact with it. We saw that approach in the recent Appointment with Fear book. That's got a three-day structure, but what you do each day is very player-driven. That's great for generating a sense of agency, but it can make trying to finish the book a real chore because it's actually really hard to track down bits that you've missed. Rebel Planet, by contrast, gives you four heavily scripted stories, which can feel somewhat restrictive, but which make it easier to grasp where you've gone wrong on previous playthroughs. And it achieves this by straight up murdering you whenever you make a big mistake. We saw a fatal failure state in my playthrough, but trust me when I say there are a lot of ways to suddenly die in the Arcadian Empire. Especially in the latter stages of the book, you'll find yourself dead at the drop of a hat or by the whim of the dice. You'd better have a high luck score because Waterfield, he loves him a luck check with fatal consequences for the unlucky. He does dole out additional luck points, but not really at a rate sufficient to offset the rapid depletion. I think you would struggle to legitimately complete this with a luck of less than 12. At least the combat encounters are generally not that tricky, which is throwing the player a bone in that sense. Where Rebel Planet's tight plotting definitely scores is in providing a strong thematic atmosphere for each planet. Tropos in particular, the first planet, is a really good depiction of a police state. Despite being paradoxically the easiest planet to complete, there is a potent feeling of oppression and of racism, which is both overt and obvious and also insidious within the setting. You've got having to submit to the indignity of your personal belongings, being searched by an indifferent functionary, finding that your hotel is a dilapidated flea pit in the rough end of town, being told that you're not allowed to drive in the town centre. All of these evoke the pervasive inequality of a segregated society, while the constant presence of alien thugs alludes to the state's use of violence, which is always inherent in preserving inequality. It's often been said that the role of the state is to preserve a monopoly on violence. It's a strangely powerful experience to have while reading an old adventure game book from the 1980s, 
And it's not hard to see depressing parallels with our own age, where economic disadvantage and the disproportionate use of violence against minority groups go hand in hand. It's a bleak thing to be confronted with in what is basically a silly podcast, but it speaks to the power of science fiction to explore really dark themes in a somewhat safe environment. If Tropos shows the violence and cruelty of the police state, then Radix, the second planet, shows its corruption and its decadence. On Tropos, you're never far from a fascist bully boy looking to stomp on your head. On Radix, there's less overt domination, but there's a strong implication that money really talks. Unlike Tropos, you can stay in a fancy hotel, but only if you're prepared to pay through the nose. There's an important plot point which is best resolved with bribery. And this showcases another side of fascism, but it's an important one. Totalitarian regimes are always utterly corrupt. I studied a fair bit of modern history, and one of the things that unites the Third Reich with both the Tsarist and Soviet regimes in Russia is that it's all a racket. Uh, A great example is that Hitler kept his senior generals on side in 1944 and 45 when it was clear that the war was lost through bribing them with gigantic sums of money and land deeds. Similarly, there's a famous Russian proverb which says, the law is like an axle. With enough grease, you can make it turn any way you like. And both of these decadent, corrupt aspects of totalitarian regimes are made manifest in Radix. It's the most open of the three planets as well in terms of how you interact with the narrative. Tropos funnels you relentlessly to where the book wants you to go, but doesn't try too hard to kill you along the way. Radix has several different routes through, and it's even got an element where at the end you have to make a decision about whether you're going to betray your own resistance fighters in order to escape and continue your arguably more important mission. So you have to actually become part of the corruption in order to survive the corruption. And that feels entirely thematically appropriate. Now, things do go a little bit wrong when you get to the third planet. The premise is fine. A frontier planet with a hostile climate, that's fine. That's a great science fiction premise. There's a nice detail where you get a small skill penalty due to the higher gravity. I love that, but it ends up feeling underwritten compared to the first two worlds, which have got such big things to say. It seems to be setting up for some classic James Bond sneaking about an infiltration, but it's clear that some combination of time and space got the better of the author. Things get kind of weird, and it ends up with the plot needing to be resolved by the introduction of a new and mysterious alien creature, which feels very out of place in this cramped little empire of only five planets. My feeling is that there just weren't enough paragraphs left to do justice to what should have been a daring raid on a scientific facility, and also maybe the creative well was running a bit dry as deadline day loomed, These are very much books written to order. 
And that highlights a general issue with the book. It clearly wants to be longer than 400 sections. In places, it clearly needs to be longer than 400 sections. There's just not quite enough space to do everything. And so you get quite a number of paragraphs that are manifestly doing double duty. And they kind of get around it by telling you multiple things that might happen depending on how you got to this section. So it might say, you will either go and stay at this place or that place, depending on what you did earlier. It gets a little tied up asking you whether you've met this person, that person, or done the other, which, you know, is a way of externalising information that would otherwise create additional branching narratives. So any piece of information can be stored either in the book itself or it can be externalised to the player. And there's definitely points at which it's externalising information to the player because there's just no space left in the book. And it shows how linear elements have to be in order to fit everything in. And it breaks immersion a bit because, well, not only are you being told that two separate things can potentially happen, but it's also telling you that all roads likely lead to the place that you're currently reading because it's asking you about various different ways you might have got there. And now that's very often true in game book. You very, very frequently have these node points that you need to bring the players back to. But no one likes being reminded of it, particularly not on their first playthrough. One thing I do like is that the linear structure highlights how logical some of the story beats are. There may be multiple ways to attract the attention of the authorities on Chopos, but all of them make sense out of the security crackdown which occurs at the spaceport when it's time to leave. There is the feeling that the authorities are behaving consistently and that actions early on have had consequences later, even though those actions are heavily scripted. I mean, it could stand to lose the profusion of instant deaths, which are also a consequence of the book needing to be longer. There's no scope for developing really interesting but fruitless side paths. As soon as you deviate from the script, the book more or less has to kill you, or simply shunt you back on track by some other artificial means. But while there's plenty of arbitrary ways to die by taking the wrong turn, it's fairly good about telling you why the fatal decision was wrong, and it does it in a way that helps sell the world as having an inner consistency. Up until the last bit, it doesn't feel like a particularly random world. In terms of finishing the book, there's a final gate check once you get to the alien's home planet in the hope of rendering an entire species brain dead, which is hugely problematic, but they are to be fair, space fascists. You don't only have to meet all three resistance leaders, you need to understand the clues that they provide to the combination lock on the magic computer. I won't spoil the solution here, but I reckon it's pretty hard. The opening clue is fairly straightforward. The final clue doesn't give you any digits, but sort of tells you how to arrange the digits in a way that makes sense. And the middle clue is delivered by staring at a crowded illustration of a desk. You have to sort of extract the, the, the numbers from the visual clues you're presented. I mean, that's a tremendous way to deliver a clue in a game book, but it is also fairly obtuse. I think any youngsters who are not highly precocious are going to be somewhat baffled by the process of decoding the final numeric code. It didn't really need to be so hard, especially given that you've had to get through three gates already 
just for the privilege of having a chance at the final code-breaking scene. There's an argument for saying you've already done the work. The finale on Arcadion also winds up feeling less than epic due to being even briefer than the preceding world. It's at least fairly intuitive once you get past the door puzzle, although it'll still cheerfully kill you if you make the wrong decision. And it's a shame that it's so brief because it means the story gets progressively less interesting and exciting as you approach the conclusion. I think the fix would have been to have the two planets where you need to find clues, those are really strong, and then go straight from the second planet to a final sequence where you essentially do the James Bond breaking into a secret base thing in more detail. That would have fixed some of the structural problems quite nicely, and there would have been more space to finish with something that left you feeling like a proper hero, rather than a slightly hapless space spy who wound up getting quite lucky. In terms of the rules, I want to heap praise on Waterfield for resisting the urge to create new space mechanics, an urge that almost no one else has been able to resist so far. We don't get any ranged combat, we don't get any space combat, and we don't get any mini-games involving tanks. We just get a laser sword and a simple mechanic whereby you can knock people out instantly in unarmed combat. It does of course mean that your character is considerably more dangerous with their fists, than with a blazing laser sword, but that's a minor enough niggle. Waterfield clearly grasps that, in general, adding more rules, even if they're fairly straightforward, creates a higher cognitive load than simply doing spot rules, which you can specify in the text. If you're only going to have one space combat sequence, you don't need rules at the beginning, you can just introduce them when they crop up. It's a sensible approach to take, he also, interestingly, removes the food mechanic and doesn't replace it with anything formal in favour of just doling out stamina at suitable points in the narrative. That does two things. It makes for a much more tense experience than having an additional 40 stamina in your back pocket. And I also think that it's a clear-thinking mindset which goes, I'm adding a mechanic, I'm going to try and remove a mechanic to compensate. He's also trying hard to iterate on combat as well. Are you even a proper fighting fantasy author at this point if you don't come up with some new way of messing about with combat? There's some good stuff in here, uh, a slightly different twist on fighting multiple enemies at once, an encounter where you've got to win in a certain number of rounds in order to dispatch the guard before the patrol arrives. We've seen that before. It's still a great mechanic. There's some good stuff in here, but it can get a bit cumbersome, and I think we're beginning to find the limits of what a single person can reasonably be expected to track. There's a very complicated encounter with a big smashy robot that combines escalating stamina damage with a weak spot on the robot, and it's quite hard to track with just a pencil and paper. Now, with a GM doing half of that work, it would probably be fine, but it does make me think about how I might go about tracking combat tricks in a hypothetical development of advanced fighting fantasy that I definitely don't have the time to write, but I'm almost certainly going to write. The artwork is very strong throughout. There's some use of comic book style panels to convey more information, and there's a lot of really good design work in there that doesn't necessarily relate to key action sequences, but does do a good job of giving the game world and the technology a distinctive visual style, which I very much appreciate. The descriptions are all solid as well, with so much information to convey, 
they don't really have space to rise above solid. Ian Livingstone is still the master of painting a vibrant and believable world at the same time as giving you the necessary information, but it's certainly not a weak point. Where does Rebel Planet sit in the pantheon of fighting fantasy? Now that's tricky to appraise. It's probably tied with Rings of Kether as the best science fiction entry in the series. Judged on the first half alone, this would be hands down the best. All the material about surviving a totalitarian regime is superb, but a weak second half does let it down a bit. Still, I'm enormously glad not to have had to wrangle shooting rules or spaceship combat, so it gets bonus points for that. I'd certainly say that it's one that's well worth a play, and it shows that science fiction stories do still have a place in the fighting fantasy range. I feel like I might have to try and tackle writing a science fiction game book myself at some point. It definitely feels like more of a challenge than the conventional dungeon crawl or the simple travel log. Well, that's all for this episode. I don't think there will be a bonus episode this month, as once again I have family obligations which require my attention, but I'll definitely be doing one in November, as I've just taken delivery of something quite special that several listeners have been suggesting that I cover. Our next regular episode will be featuring the subnautical Demons of the Deep by the other Steve Jackson from America. Now, as any retro gamer knows, water levels are usually the work of the devil, so it will be interesting to see if that proves true for fighting fantasy. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm not on Twitter or Facebook for mental health reasons, but you can drop me a line by emailing hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com, and I'm fairly good about replying to everyone who mails me, at least sooner or later. Thanks very much for listening, stay safe, and I'll see you soon.